Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the place in the family of Freightways Freightcast where we talk about that which must be drilled, which is oil, to allow that which trucks do, and that's drive. We're going to switch our focus a bit in the second part of the show, and we're going to talk about the railroads. Jim Blaze, who is a Freightways contributor and a rail expert, a rail economist, he's going to join us. Jim always has some great insights on what's going on on the tracks. We're going to kick things off, though, uh, by talking about oil. The first thing to know is that the price of diesel remains in Groundhog Day territory, barely moving day in and day out. That's a great thing for consumers, so we just don't have a lot to say there. The second thing, though, we're going to talk about is something that on the surface should be of concern to the consumers of diesel. Uh, Maybe there's something else, though, going on that won't make the news all that bad. In the last few weeks, U.S. refiners have announced the closure of three refineries. One is fairly small. It's a refinery in Gallup, New Mexico, near the Four Corners area. The second two, though, are pretty big. They're both in California, and they're both up near the Bay Area. One is another another marathon refinery in Martinez, California. The second is a refinery operated by Phillips 66, known as the San Francisco Refinery, but it's actually two refineries connected by 200 miles of pipeline. The biggest part of it, though, is in Rodeo, which isn't far from Martinez, where the marathon refinery is closing. Three refineries closing in a year is a lot, and really it's not even a year. It's uh, announcements over a matter of months. Refineries do shut down from time to time, but the frequency of closures has not been high in recent years, and the ones that have gone uh, off the boards have tended to be small. Uh, The one big uh, exception to that is the Philadelphia Energy Solutions Refinery in the city of Brotherly Love. That closed last year after an explosion. It was the biggest refinery on the East Coast, but that had been troubled for years. It was really already on life support. The three that are shutting down now are all going out of business primarily because of the pandemic and the resulting loss in demand. There are other reasons. After all, the companies could have chosen other refineries in their systems to react to the the decline in in demand. So unique situations at these plants, whatever they were, had to have a role. And in the case of the two California refineries, there very much is a reason, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Refineries closing anywhere is not good news for users of diesel. But where the silver lining is here is in the fact that at Martinez and at Rodeo, they are going to be converted to making renewable diesel. Renewable diesel is not the same thing as biodiesel. Biodiesel uh, comes from agricultural oils, greases, and fats. It goes through a process. It produces a sort of unfinished fuel that can be blended into existing distillate products like diesel or heating oil, but you can't dump 100% biodiesel into a truck and expect it to run the engine. It will not work that way. But renewable diesel is different. It does come from the same feedstocks as biodiesel, but it's also a one-for-one substitute with conventional diesel. You can run a truck 100% on renewable diesel. And that's good news because Phillips definitely plans on making a renewable diesel at Rodeo, and Marathon has indicated a strong likelihood that they will do so at Martinez. What's driving this move is not strong demand for diesel. What's driving it is a series of tax breaks for clean biodiesel or renewable diesel. One break is a federal tax break called the Blender's Tax Credit, and it is worth up to a dollar per gallon. The second one is a complex incentive program in California called the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard. If you really want to know the specifics of it, you're going to have to read up about it. I I won't go through it here on the podcast. 
The LCFS, as it's known, is a regulation, but it's not a traditional regulation where you've got to meet some rule, and if you don't, you get penalized and fined. It's a cap-and-trade type system, but suffice it to say for now, making renewable diesel can be very profitable under the California low-carbon fuel standard. It is not a coincidence that the facilities being closed by Marathon and Phillips are in California and that they can be converted to making renewable diesel. Because of the standard, making renewable diesel in California is more lucrative than making it anywhere else. One thing to note, the amount of renewable diesel to come out of these plants is not likely to match what is produced now. It is produced now in terms of conventional diesel. It is unclear how much less it will be. It won't be massively less, but it will be less. The bottom line then is that refineries closing is never a good thing for truckers. It is the lifeblood fuel of the industry. Having three of them close in just a few months' time is even worse. But given that two of them are going to be making a different but just as effective type of diesel, the blow from these closures from the perspective of a trucker is definitely softer than it would have been otherwise. We're going to talk about something now that I've been dying to talk about here on Drilling Deep for a while, but I just haven't been able to get around to it, and that's the railroads. You know, there's been so much focus in the transportation sector in recent months since the pandemic first started on how the trucking sector was coping with it. But I also wanted to talk about how the rails are doing. So who better to bring on then than Jim Blaze? Jim is a Freightways contributor. He's a railroad career economist with an engineering background and a strategic analysis outlook. His career spans 21 years with the old Conrail, 17 years with the rail engineering firm Zeta Tech Associates, seven years with the state of Illinois Department of Transportation in Chicago, uh, looking at urban goods movement research. And then he spent two years studying what to do with the seven bankrupt and unrecognizable Northeast railroads at the Federal Energy Federal Railroad Agency, USRA. So, Jim, welcome to Drilling Deep. Well, thank you, John. Glad to be so, with your uh, audience. Yeah. So let, let, let's talk in, in general first. Uh, let's first start by having you discuss how you think the railroads have done since the middle of March. The general view in trucking, I know, was that March was good because of the restocking of shells. April was terrible. May was a bit better. June wasn't all that bad. And July was even a little better than June, carrying into August. So what would be your description of that period for the railroad industry? Well, traffic-wise, John, the railroads took a hit. And some areas like automobile, finished automobile traffic out of Mexico or from the uh, various auto plants spread across the United States and Canada. Yeah, that traffic get, levels were down 80% range uh, as the plants shut down. But uh, financially, boy, it's a good thing to be in the railroad technology business. It's hard to believe that uh, the uh, railroads had, still have their earnings in the 30% to roughly 40% traffic margin level. Wouldn't you like to be a trucking company with those kinds of results? Yeah. <laughs> so it's been interesting looking at, uh, I do the monthly report on employment levels. Uh, I look at the, when the, the unemployment number comes out, I look at trucking, I look at rail. And, you know, trucking's been fluctuating. It was down, but it was back up. And what's been interesting is comparing a year ago how much the employment numbers are down from last year. And it's not all just pandemic. I'm assuming a lot of it's at PSR. But, you know, to your point about the margins, those lower employment levels are probably certainly a factor. Yeah, so every 1,000 employees, a Class 1 railroad, that's one of those seven big ones. 
uh, takes out of their workforce, you, you could be talking $80 million to $110 million a year in cost savings. I mean, that's a huge factor. A lot of this is driven because the wages are so high in the railroad industry. So the railroads haven't lost their focus of trying to keep the, uh, the employment levels down because they want to have the productivity by employees way up. All right, let's talk to a very specific part of the business, and I know it's one that you'd like to talk about, and that's intermodal. You know, what, what I know about intermodal, the one overriding thing is that when the price of diesel gets really high and trucks have to pay big money for diesel, uh, that gives a significant advantage to the intermodal efficiency on fuel, which we, we nobody doubts that moving goods, a ton of goods um, on, a, on rail compared to trucks is far more fuel efficient. When the price of diesel gets down, and, and it's not only is the price of diesel down, the price of diesel is steady. It's about as stable as it's been in a long period of time. When that gets down there, that tends to take that efficiency advantage and erode it. So what kind of offerings are intermodal, uh, let's say, marketing people bringing to their customers today? Why is intermodal better in this kind of an era? Well, that's a tough question to answer. What are the railroad marketing people doing to offset the fuel drop? First, I want to uh, I want to second what your comment is. My experience as an economist tracking uh, railroads, we're not talking car load. We're basically talking talking trailers or containers on fl- on flat cars or wheel cars. The the intermodal basically has gets an advantage that it can sustain and start to grab market share from the trucks when diesel fuel has been $4 or more higher per gallon for the truckers. It's been a long time since I've seen $4. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a long way from now, which I guess the average, the DOE average is running around 240 I better check that. Um, and uh, I should know it off the top of my head. But, um, and certainly a long way from 4 bucks. Right, so the offset operationally, particularly if you're a so-called precision scheduled router. I hate that term because nothing's is actually scheduled precisely. Um, but we'll, we can talk about that later. Um, you basically try to run longer and longer trains because you want to keep your unit cost advantage down. Uh, you got, you know, essentially one or two people in the cab up and you're now... Now your intermodal trains could be 10,000, 12,000 feet long, whereas typically in the past they may have been only seven or 8,000 feet long. So that's what the railroads are doing. And they basically are, are also overall slowing their overall train velocity down. So whereas typical intermodal trains in the past, John, might have been running at 30, 32, 33 miles per hour um, Major yard to major yard, that, that would be the average uh, speed that shows up if you look at that kind of stuff. Uh, sometimes those trains now are closer to 25 miles per hour, 27 miles per hour. So there's been a compression in the in the variance between train speeds. So those are little tricks the railroads do to, uh, to essentially sustain their cost advantage or what they perceive as their cost advantage. But, John, none of those basically improve service to customers, do they? Yeah, I mean, to, to the to the contrary, obviously, if you've cut that many miles per hour off your speed, you've got a deterioration in service. So, what? Uh, how efficient is intermodal? Then it's it has this reputation of being so much more efficient 
is it losing that reputation? It's in its quest. You know, we keep talking about intermodal, but intermodal is just going to be affected by the same trends that are hitting all railroads, which is a cost containment structure, a cost containment goal under the uh, under the umbrella of precision railroading. Well, that's a tough question to answer. But I, what, I, what I like to do is turn the question on its head, and I like to say, okay, so how efficient is an intermodal? Okay, so if you have a trailer, a semi-trailer put on a on a flat car, what we call TOFC, right? Trailer on flat cars for your audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cost for the railroad, arguably, to move that 53-foot trailer, just talking one trailer, what, what it costs to move one trailer, uh, is probably in the area of know, 75 cents, 95 cents. There's a disagreement uh, by economists on how to measure those costs, so there's some variance. I'm talking about full cost, though, but before I attach a profit margin to this. And when I attach the profit margin to this, of course, then I can convert this cost per mile to a price per mile. So the price per mile that your listeners are going to see in the marketplace is going to be obviously higher than this internalized railroad cost. Now, let me go to the double stack container car, which was introduced back in about 1983-84, not by the railroad industry. Oh, no, no. It was introduced by some colleagues of mine at uh, American President's Lines. Not a trucking company, right? Uh, Steve. Yeah. Company. Right. Oh, my. Innovation from the outside. But nevertheless, the railroads adapted to that and followed their customers. So when we shifted to double stack, basically, we had a roughly 35% to 45% range of cost per unit mile drop to the railroads in terms of their competitive cost advantage. Holy moly, how many engineering projects have been attached to the trucking industry that you can think of that have a 35 to 45% immediate cost advantage? Not many. Not many. No. So when I look at, now nobody knows really what, well, it's what I call intelligence leakage. So while presumably the marketplace really doesn't know what the contract rates offered to big premium customers like J.B. Hunt or Snyder are today, because the, the, the railroads like to keep those very secretive, then you can't look them up in the Surface Transportation Board because when the data is turned over to the board for strategic planning and policy analysis, that those kinds of data are masked. You don't see them. But I calculate that, and, I, and again, look, there, there, there could be some error band in what I'm going to tell you, but I'm calculating that on a full cost basis without the profit margin put in or the price, um, you could move a 53-foot double stack container, just looking at one of those units, not the two stacked together, just the one. You can move them for somewhere between 50 to 60 cents a container mile. Oh, my. What's what's the baseline cost of moving over the rubber the rubber uh, concrete road per mile? If you're well, I mean, the, you know, the the, the the freight rates now are running starting to look like two bucks in a lot of key markets. Yeah. Well, I'm talking. Yeah, but I'm, remember, I'm not talking about the price. Yeah. The profit margin. I'm thinking about yeah, no, just run an empty. <laughs> or, or running, running with a load, but at the minimum price offered. Uh, if you if you're offered a dollar ten, you, and you're a trucker, well, what's your real cost? Full cost? 
before you just get to break even. It's nowhere near 50 cents a mile or 60 cents a mile. So, so there, that, that is a way I, uh, I use to illustrate to outsiders how railroads look at their competitive advantage with double stacking. Now, to that, of course, the, the cost is going to be added uh, a price margin. And different railroads will price this differently. So, but uh, those are the funnel economics that basically say, oh, this is why intermodal is, is still very productive. And 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 some analysts, financial analysts, will argue, well, yeah, the railroads don't make money on uh, intermodal, even with double stack. And I would counter, yeah, they don't make as much money as they would by moving a carload of. of uh, uh, 90,000 gallons of uh, chemicals in a regular carload shift as they do with uh, intermodal. That's true, but their profit margin based on their cost is still pretty high. So let me ask you, you talked about the, the, the sharp downturn in, uh, in, in, in freight traffic earlier in the year. It is certainly picking up. Uh, you were also running into this lower number of workers on the railroad. Uh, if you get a significant upturn in demand by the second half of the year, well, we're already in the second half of the year, but if it continues through the second half of the year, are the railroads going to be squeezed on the employee side? Have they just let too many workers go? Uh, well, I covered this in uh, one of my weekly commentary papers for Freightways back in October, November. I, I uh, networked with a professor, Peter Swan, out of Penn State University. And we had we both basically had a consensus that when the railroads cut their costs, they're cutting two kinds of costs, people costs and asset costs. And in some cases, when they cut asset costs, they store them, but they store them in out-of-the-way places because they don't have a lot of storage jacks, fr frankly, nearby where their customers are located. So you could go out in the middle of Nebraska and find, go, go past some old yard and, oh, look. All those cars out there, all, all, all those locomotives. So when they, when they, the point is when they get to calling the assets back, this would be uh, trailer and flat cars or double stack cars or locomotives that are out of place and out of way place. It takes time to bring those assets back in. And the railroads have been, in my opinion, not some railroads are doing better than others, but but in my opinion, overall the class one railroads have been a little bit slow. Not unexpected by Dr. Swan and myself at uh, putting these assets back. Now, uh, for the personnel that they would need, train crews, they basically have to call them back because they've been technically put on furlough, which, is, well, it's a strange term. I don't, I don't know whether you furlough people in the trucking industry, but we furlough people, uh, which is a way of saying, look, we're laying you off, uh, but you have your seniority and you can expect that we're going to call you back as soon as conditions return. Yeah, but some people go out and get jobs in the construction industry or they pick up the job somewhere else. They're, or maybe they're getting tired of being furloughed over so many decades of their career. So then they move on to another career. So point is, again, calling the people back to staff these trains essentially is a slower process than is laying them off. Yeah, it always is. Uh, let me ask you, at, uh, we had a discussion about short-haul intermodal. Intermodal has been generally the area run by the seven big railroads, 
many times in conjunction with trucking companies like J.B. Hunt or intermodal-focused, I don't know if you'd call um, Hub a trucking company or an an intermodal company. But on a short haul, intermodal just really isn't there. Uh, Is that an area that's ripe for expansion or just because the the mileage is so short, you just did not get the kind of advantage that you'd get? The railroads haven't figured out how to crack that nut. Uh, there's, there's a couple of problems. One, one problem is, first of all, just think of an origin. So you, you're going to move a trailer from I don't know, Nashville to Cincinnati. Uh, maybe that's not quite a long enough. So let's go Atlanta to, to Cincinnati. Uh, first of all, you you probably have to go pick up the load. Then you got to go to a node that's not necessarily in the direction that you, the customer wants the freight to be moving in order to put it on a on a train. It has to sit around on a train. You have a yard expense and all the associated cost centers that are in a railroad yard. And then you have a lifting charge that uh, on a cheap end would be $25. On an expensive end would be 75 bucks. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have to pay the same 50 to 75 bucks or whatever the charge is when you get to Cincinnati. Well, wait a minute, there's 150 bucks already, plus time delay. That basically takes away what is the, the um, uh, economies of scale. If you just load this thing in Los Angeles and you run it for almost 3,000 miles to northern New Jersey, where you don't have where the terminal costs basically is not such a huge impediment. So if, uh, if policymakers like state DOTs and the feds want to figure out how to improve the um, ability for short-haul competition, in my opinion, you got to figure out, well, how do you reduce the terminal costs? Uh, should these terminal costs be public, uh, public assets points where essentially the, the terminal loading cost is lower because I'm not having to cover the CapEx that's being privately financed by the railroad or its intermodal partners? That's, that's one possibility. Um, the other possibility is uh, now that I'm semi-retired, I get to drive. Well, I did get to drive cross-country, been, been driven from New Jersey to California about three times in the last four or five years. And as I go past all these trucks that are on the road still that haven't been captured by the railroad industry, I look over and I say, boy, an awful lot of the percentage are semi-trailers. Semi-trailers don't fit in the double, than the well carts for the double stack containers. We don't have a rapid load and unload car in the railroad industry here in the United States or Canada and Mexico that basically can increase the velocity of which you can load these semi-trailers. Instead, the railroad marketing philosophy is, got to convert the, the semi-trailer users to containers. Because that's the platform car we offer. Right, right. That, yes, that, so, is, that is the marketing hurdle that we have not cracked the nut on. All right. Only got only got a bit, about a minute or so. So what should be the biggest thing we should look for in the remainder of the year? I, I hate to say second half now that we're, you know, six, seven weeks into the into that second half. Uh, what do you think is just going to be the biggest trend? Will it just be looking at volume and seeing how well the railroads come back uh, from the pandemic in the same way we're all looking at that for the railroad, for the trucks as well? I don't, I don't think the railroad freight industry on in the intermodal area has a, um, the magic formula for figuring out how to get more traffic. So the railroads basically are really in a, they follow the demand that the market brings to them. So, um, 
if and if the railroad industry as an industry was going to recover, particularly if their margins were going to recover and they're going to get traffic, they're going to have to play a more positive role in growing traffic volume. I would say they're going to do this in the car load area. And the first signal for me is going to be, okay, so what's happening with uh, plastics? What's happening with chemicals? What's happening with heavy products that are in the industrial sector of the railroad for the car industry? That's essentially what I think will will signal whether or not the railroads uh, are going, how the railroads are going to participate in the recovery and what that recovery pace is going to look like. All right. Well, maybe we'll join. We'll have you join me in a couple of months and we'll see how it all went. Well, I'd like to do that. All right. I want to thank Jim Blaze, a well-known rail economist, long career, uh, and also a Freightways competitor. I was going to say Freightways competitor, Freightways contributor <laughs> uh, for joining us here today on Drilling Deep. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on all the major freight, all the major podcast platforms. And uh, we are here every week. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again. 